Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? And welcome back to the Second Reading Podcast. I'm Jim Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. It's the only University of Texas in Austin, but still. Um, they, I don't know if the style guide still well, you don't has wanna, the in it. Well, you don't want to be confused with like the University of Austin or any. Well, I have no, you know, complaints about that per se. This, um, this, this started with Ohio State, and so I, I have a negative sort of vibe about it. But the okay. Ohio the State, Ohio State, okay. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, anyway, uh, I am happy to be joined by the UT Texas Politics Project polling team. Uh, my esteemed colleague, Darren Schopp, professor of government at the University of Texas at Austin. Thanks for making it in, Darren. Hello. <laughs> well, I'm not going to ask that question, but okay. <laughs> and Joshua Blank, research director for the Texas Politics Project. Thank you, Josh. You're How welcome. are you this morning? Doing good, thanks. You're psyched because you get to go to a show tonight, right? It's true. I do get to. I'm going down Josh to San Antonio. Gonna, I rock tonight. Yeah, I'm gonna, yeah I would say so. It's, That's good. It's My good. wife saw you two at the Sphere in Las Vegas last week. So, oh, man. so oh, top, top that one, you know. This wow. is, I, yeah, like this is to be a different that. vibe. Yeah. That's a little bit different vibe. Josh, a Pearl Jam guy, for those of you who don't know out there. I did see, I saw both Pearl Jam shows in Austin, actually. A two-shower. Yeah, that's right. I go into both. <laughs> um, we have Professor Shaw with us today uh, because we, this morning, published results of the latest University of Texas, Texas Politics Project poll. I mean, in addition to just the fact that he's stellar company. Um but uh, we publish results at the Texas Politics Project website. If you haven't seen those yet, that's at texaspolitics.utexas.edu. Navigate. There's a link in the marquee box. Navigate through the polling section. It's going to be pretty hard to miss, though it takes a little clicking. Um, and, uh, you know, a big part of this poll is, you know, one of the thematics here, the hook, if you will, was, you know, about a year out from the 2024 general election, what does the electoral landscape look like in Texas? So, you know, we had lots of questions about the presidential uh, election, in particular the presidential primary, but lots of probing of of what seemed to be at this point without, you know, prejudging the outcome, the the two major candidates, Donald Trump and, and Joe Biden. So let's just dive into that. Let's dive in and, let, and let's start with... The presidential prime, the GOP presidential primary, where you know we found not too many surprising results on the surface of it, right, Josh? But I think when we drilled down, you know, there were some interesting nuggets there that we'll unpack. Yeah, I mean, I think just to run through the top lines real quick, you know, not surprisingly, Donald Trump uh, really trounced his competition. I don't know if this, this counts as a trouncing. You know, he's at sixty-two percent of uh, basically registered voters who said they intended to vote in the Republican primary coming up. So this is not a likely voter sample. I see these are potential Republican primary voters. We're still a long ways out from there. But even among that group, he almost got to two thirds of Republican voters. He was 
followed in a distant, distant second by Ron DeSantis at 13%, Nikki Haley at 7 and then the remaining candidates were, were at 3% or less. I mean, one interesting thing is, you know, at this point in time, I mean, everybody had an opinion. It wasn't as though there was a lot of people to kind of wait, reserving judgment. Yeah, that was interesting. And we didn't, you know, obviously at this early point, we didn't push or anything. So yeah. pe- people did weigh in. No, and the thing is, look, you know, when we talk about the Democratic Senate primary, you'll see people had no problem telling us they had no idea, right? I mean, not surprisingly, but these are, you know, I mean, Trump's obviously universally known. DeSantis is very well known. I mean, no, we know from our prior polling that Haley, Pence, uh, you know, Tim Scott, you know, a couple of these guys are also incredibly well known within the Republican electorate. And so that was sort of the top line piece of this. You know, when we think about Republican primaries, we can see Trump's support gets stronger as we go from sort of potential Republican primary voters to people who say they're conservative to people who say they're extremely conservative, which, again, bodes even better for him once we start to get into that kind of likely voter uh, pool. We also asked, we can go on into the other results around this. We asked about second choices. We also asked about candidates we wouldn't right. support. Do you want to go in that direction? No, let's, let's drill in. That. I, want to, I want to ask Darren. Yeah, so, good. you know, you've been looking at, you know, a lot of Republican yeah. primary polling and a lot of primary polling generally in your, in your various projects. I mean, you know, what do you make of this? Well, there's a, a couple interesting things that we shouldn't neglect. The first is, you know, we asked people, Texas is an open primary state. Are you going to vote in the Republican or the Democratic primary? And we got about a 12-point spread there. 47% said they intended to vote in the Republican and 35% the Democratic. And now you could say, well, uh, you know, there's a nominally competitive Republican primary and there's really no competitive Democratic primary uh, on the pre- at the presidential level. But the Democrats have a very competitive Senate race. Um, and you know, which one might have thought would draw some people in there. Well, the the word that comes to mind consistently as I'm reading this is lag. The Texas electorate seems not to be engaged in a way that we see in other places, and that's that's understandable. We wouldn't expect Texas to be as on edge about the Republican primary as Iowa or New Hampshire or South Carolina. Um, but Josh alluded to one thing, which is on the Democratic side, nobody knows who almost anybody is who's running for Senate. That's an indication that this thing has not heated up in any kind of serious way. And then the numbers in Texas are pretty consistent with what we see nationally, but they're not consistent with what we see in some of the earlier primary states. That is, what we have here is DeSantis is still the number two choice, but DeSantis has fallen away. Nikki Haley has sort of emerged as a, a two, you know, 2A or 2B, with DeSantis being the other kind of second place finisher. But but she's not double digits here the way she is in a lot of the other early primary states. Um, so, you know, that's an indication to me that, you know, even though Texas Republicans say, yeah, I'm, I'm going to vote in the Republican primary, it doesn't seem to me they're really paying attention at a level that you see in some of the other Republican primary states, which makes sense. Texas is a Super Tuesday state. There haven't, I mean, there have been just a handful of visits to Texas, largely to raise money, as opposed right. to Iowa and New Hampshire. So, um, there's not but, a lot of retail going on here at right, this point, right? But I guess, I guess, for the listeners though, the question is, okay, well, what do I make of that? Does that mean that that this is just going to kind of bubble along and Trump is going to win with, you know, as Josh said, two thirds of the vote, or you know, will Texas follow if you see more appreciable movement in some of these other early primary states? Um, and, which is a contingent statement, right? I mean, at first it's got to happen, and then Texas <laughs> right. has to follow. Well, you know, in respo- I, I don't know. In response to that, I think one of the other items actually speaks to that in, in an interesting way, which is I think one of the interesting things about this is we, we also ask, again, these potential Republican primary voters, are there any of these candidates that you just wouldn't support, yeah. right? And we give them we give them the option of, you know, you can select all, all of them, all but one of them. 
whatever, and basically all but the one that you didn't select or, or what have you, right? And what's interesting about this, and the survey doesn't have to work this way, but 62% of, of these potential Republican primary voters said they were going to vote for Trump. 38%, which is 100 minus 62, just for those of you, you know, a little bit of math, said they would not be supporting Trump. Right. And that's interesting. Again, it doesn't work that way. It's not like all these add up where you say like, okay, you know, for Ron DeSantis, 13% say they, they say they'd support him. 22% said they couldn't support Ron DeSantis. And so what's interesting is, I mean, on the one hand, at least in the Republican primary, it indicates something of a ceiling potentially for Trump in Texas. But to your point, you know, to the extent that like, you know, if Trump starts to, you know, get out <laughs> in the myriad number of things that could happen between now and Election Day that could impact, you know, the trajectory of Trump's candidacy with respect to his legal problems, other things. You know, you could say there is a base of support for somebody else, right. but absent, you know, again, Trump cratering somewhere, it seems unlikely that that's really going to manifest in any serious way. Would you agree with that? Yeah, it's a, it looks like a two to one. The, yeah. the, you know, two out of every three Republicans in Texas are fine with Donald Trump, but one out of three aren't fine. Right. With Trump. And and they're sort of scattered amongst all these other different contenders right now. It's it's unclear whether the, the, the two of the three are just wholly committed to Trump no matter what happens. Um, just, just for clarification, on the I think we asked everybody the who would you not vote for, right? Yeah. Well, they, what do you mean? No, oh, no, 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 no. It, no, it, it was, was just Republicans. It was just the Republicans. It was just Republicans. Right. I'm sorry, because I was looking at the crosstabs and I thought I saw numbers amongst Democrats on those that. would be those so because the filter on that is actually saying you're going to vote in the Republican primary that probably represents the three okay. Democrats right, who right, said right. Gotcha. I'm going to vote it yeah okay good that's so for those of you who dig down into the cross tabs that's that's, well, that's why cross tabs can be dangerous that's, that's, that's what I say you yeah. want to do that when you want to make sure you have a part have a partner right ha have fun but don't hurt yourself yeah, try to ask questions right. the other the other one who you know Christie and Pence also oh. you know they're kind of the next two wouldn't vote for Oh yeah, um, yeah. They're the top. I, they're the, well, top, the top two, two. right? Yeah. Right. And yeah. then there's sort of every. So there's you know those sort of three characters, and then everybody else. Republicans seem open to. It's like one in five might right. say like, yeah, not for me. Yeah, that's about right. Yeah. Um, Unless you're Tim Scott, in this case, one in ten. Right. Which I found interesting as well. He's very. I high. bought a lot of Tim Scott stock early on. I'm not sure if that's going to transfer well, but <laughs> yeah, I, you know, don't tell your financial advisor about that <laughs> no. I, as it's turning out. Yeah. 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 yeah so. so you know, I, you know, I'm just going to ask the obvious thing. And, you know, Josh, you and I were talking about this earlier. And I'm, I'm honestly curious what you think about this. And we've talked about this on the podcast before. But, I mean, it, it's really striking to see just how dominant Trump is in these numbers. Even allowing for all the path dependency we might see in the future and the things that could change. But, you know, you look at the media coverage of Trump and, and Trump's public image in the last month. And what do you see? You know, people flipping on him in his various trials, you know, him sort of seeming to throw kerosene on the fire in Congress. Um, and, you know, I don't want us to have to go through the usual, okay, well, the guy's Teflon, whatever. But I mean, I, is it wrong to be a little struck by the fact that his, you know, he still exerts just such powerful gravity in Republican politics. Yeah, well, you know, we all remember the statement that Trump made. I'm paraphrasing, but I could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and, you know, wouldn't lose any support. And that struck us at the time as, as having a kernel of truth. And, and as time has passed, it's more than a kernel. Um, and I, I think it, it reflects a couple things. The, the, the first is that when you rise to power— by articulating a critique of the system, that the system is rigged, the system is biased, then everything 
and, and if your supporters are amenable to that critique, they believe that yeah, they critique, invest in it, right? By voting for you a then, couple of times, then you right? have a ready-made explanation for you know these misadventures or you know illegal activities or investigations, which is this is the system lashing out at me because I'm the one who's trying to take it down. And I, I do think that's a big part of it. You know, the system is seen as corrupt, um, and not just Republicans, obviously, but Democrats. And Trump has primed people for that, and and everything I think is seen through that lens. And then the second point, which is really related to the first, is that both the Democratic-backed um, investigations and the media's kind of portrayal of Trump have fed that narrative. And, and you know, if we've talked amongst ourselves early about uh, the four major kind of investigations, right, the, you know, sort of in, in, in order, the, uh, the Manhattan District Attorney investigation into campaign finance, right, then the, the files – um, White House files that were taken when Trump left, then the January 6th investigations, and then the Georgia cases. And and I've always kind of thought that those the, the those are important in reverse order in some ways, right? Yeah. Not January 6th and the and the Georgia investigation are you know related, obviously, but um, but they led with the Manhattan investigation, which I think to a lot of people seemed like you know, what is going on It makes here. the reaction to the others being like, oh, and another oh, one. Oh, here's another here's one. Here's another one, yeah. Right, and, and, and that's not to to blame the messenger, or but but it, it is to say that if you think of this thing as as a piece, that uh, that first one, which sets the tone for the kinds of investigations that are going to occur, and of course this comes on the heels of an impeachment after he had left office. Right. You know, Republicans, I don't know if you say could be forgiven, but it's not it's not as surprising the reaction you get it's not to excuse it. It's not to say that, you know, we don't have problems. It's not to say that in the data, we don't see, you know, lots of people, including independents, who do take these things seriously. Yeah. And I think ultimately provide a cap on how well Trump could possibly do in Texas, right? That's there. But you're right, Jim. The main thing is like, my gosh, this guy's still completely dominating the Republican primary. He's up, you know, seven or eight points on Biden in Texas. He's actually got a larger lead than, you know, he ended up carrying the state with last time. So, you know, that's all here. And he, you know, uh, you know, I, I mean, to to move to a next little chunk of the data, I mean, you know, as you say, you know, I mean, you know, not surprising in the head to head to Biden what those numbers look like very much. Yeah, no, I mean, it was pretty comparable to where we polled Trump and Biden in October of 2019. Right. I mean, so if we go back to the last election. That's about the spread. I would also say, you know, in terms of the gap to where it ends up, you know, we expect polling. I mean. In some ways, this is a return to kind of the historical norm in some ways where we expect the Republican candidate to have somewhere in the neighborhood of – I mean, it used to be a bigger lead, right? It used to be like 14, 15 points. And then right. as the election day would come, maybe it would be 10 or 12. Now it was you know, sort of like it used to be 10 or 12. Now it's like you know, maybe maybe 9 to 11. And then you, we think that that might shrink you know, as we get towards election day, potentially, obviously, depending on everything else. But in some ways, it's a, it's a return to normality in some sense to see this kind of a gap in Texas, right? I mean, which to your point, Jim, is actually kind of interesting, which is like, so this is normal, right? Yeah. And I, you know, and again, I don't, you know, I don't want to seem all like my hair on fire about it. But I mean, I, you know, it's worth pausing, I think, and kind of going, you know, this is a little strange. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's a little unpre- I, I, you know, it's a lot unprecedented. Yeah, right? but just- and that's you know, and I and again, I, I sort of agree with you know all of your explanation for it, and I think, you know, it's not like there's not a precedent for it in the polling we've done before. Well, and if you think about, you know, another topic we talk about a lot in here, you know, we talk about negative partisanship, you know, a lot here. And I mean, you can't ignore the fact that, you know, you're talking about him running against an incredibly unpopular president, especially with Republicans, but also just kind of overall in Texas. 
And so, I mean, you know, one of the things I think you should, it's sort of, it's sort of interesting in this res, in this set of results when you kind of put it together. And can I move to the trial ballots a little yeah, bit Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where I wanted to go. Great. Which is, you know, so on the one hand, we're sort of, we're saying, okay, so if you look in the Republican primary electorate, you know, about two thirds say that they'd be supporting Trump. About a third say that they would not support Trump. Now, however, when you get to the ele- general election matchup and you say, well, what if he were running against Joe Biden, uh, you know, over 80% of Republicans say they would support Trump. And just to be clear, 3% say they would support Biden, which is basically zero. And the remainder are kind of holding out. Holding out. Now, look, are those people going to go and start supporting Biden? No. But what's interesting about what's in these results also is that Trump performed significantly better against Biden than the other Republican candidates we tested. And that's not uh, because all of a sudden, you know, Democrats support waivers. It's because Republicans support waivers for all the other candidates. So even though... There's this sort of large share of Republicans who say, yeah, I don't think I could support Trump in the primary. In the general election, it's a very small share. And in fact, they're reserving a lot more judgment for the other Republican candidates. And so what we see is basically Biden running even against DeSantis, against uh, uh, Ramaswamy, against Haley, against Scott, against Pence, almost running, actually running a little bit ahead of Pence because, again, because Republicans have such negative views of Pence, not because of any difference in support among Democrats for Biden. So, I mean, I mean, this is one thing that we talk about a lot, which is, you know, what do campaigns do? They're going to galvanize the party. They're going to remind people why they're going to Republicans. And also, you know, just because, you know, some Republicans might have reservations about Trump does not mean they're about to turn around and vote for Joe Biden. And I think that's clear in these results. Yeah, I think, look, in the, the, the marquee head-to-head matchup, it's, it's Trump 45, Biden 37, yep. an eight-point spread. And if I were, you know, on, on the Democratic side, I'd say... 45%. I mean, that that is significantly underachieving yeah. you know, for a Republican candidate in Texas. And we have talked previously about Trump being, running about five points, mm-hmm. you guys agreed, five, about five points lower than than top line kind of popular Republicans in the state of Texas. Yeah, give right. or take a point or two. Right. Yeah, 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 sure. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, and, and, you know, we, we haven't called it the Trump tax, but Pundits speaking of this phenomenon nationally have talked about. I wouldn't the Trump call tax. it a tax in Texas. But yeah. No. <laughs> well, but uh, you know, I've never thought that Trump was a that Trump's rhetoric was particularly well suited to Texas. It, it's it's better suited to uh, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and Michigan and those states because the, the the sort of less well educated white working class that exists there, um, the the populist rhetoric plays really really well. Here in, in Texas, there, there's that element of the party, but that element of the party is also kind of bound up with social issues in a way that makes them a little less right. kind, of, kind of enthused about Trump. But, but two things I would observe about that, having made that argument or made that s- statement about sort of where Trump is compared to the others, all the Republicans, as Josh mentioned, are running, you know, in the mid to high 30s. You know, Biden's a con. Biden's basically a 35, 36 percent against everybody. Um, and the Republicans have you know, the Haley's, the Ramaswamy's, the DeSantis's, et cetera, DeSanti, uh, yeah. are running are running in the mid to high 30s because they haven't consolidated Republican support. Now, the, the question then long term, I think this is not just a Texas question, but a national question is, if you don't have Trump, what are the two, two things? Do Republicans rally around the Republican nominee? My answer to that is absolutely yes. There's almost no question they would rally around right. a Tim Scott or a Nikki Haley, right? Um, you know, if you're talking about a Pence or you know, Christie then, but since we don't think that's going to happen. Yeah, worry about right? that. So yeah. I, I think the consolidation of the but, Republican but, but, vote. But, but, but underlining them, the fact that we're yeah. not worrying about that is actually telling. Yes. Right. Yeah, exactly. Then there's a secondary question and that is, okay, so the defection isn't an issue, but are they mobilizable? Are they, are they going to turn out like they would if Trump were the nominee? And what we see in the national polls is there's about a 20 point gap in terms of enthusiasm. We asked in the Fox poll, 
you know, um, how important is it for you to go cast your ballot if the election is between, and one was Trump and Biden, and, and the Republican numbers in that context were in the high 80s. And then we asked if it was Biden versus Haley, and the Republican numbers were in the high 60s. Um, but, but are the Democrat numbers stable? The Democratic numbers are a little higher with Trump. They're in the mid-80s, and they come down into the mid-70s for the other Republicans. So so this is something we've talked about a little bit in Texas. The turnout variance here, strangely, I think, for people who think of this stuff kind of historically, the, the turnout variance is, is really on the right right now. I, I'm kind of of the opinion, it's not that there's no variance on the left, that a better candidate or worse candidate wouldn't affect Democratic turnout. But I think a lot of it is baked in and a lot of it is negative, which is if Trump's on the ticket, you're going to see record turnout. If not, you'll see pretty good turnout. I think the variance on the Republican side is really to be yeah. determined. Well, see, I don't want to discount de- variance on the Democratic side because when you were talking about, um, you know, Trump maybe and the level of his alignment with Texas relative to some other places, I was thinking, you know, part of the issue with Trump in Texas also might be to the extent that, you know, his rhetoric strikes particularly, you know, for counter mobilizing the groups of Democrats, you know, just have a hard time mobilizing it's in a good Texas. Point. Yeah, it's a you good know, point. It, you know, provides, it just provides ready-made, you know, messaging and ads and all that kind of stuff. Again, with the groups that really right. Democrats have had a hard time mobilizing. Young people, young people yeah. of color especially. And, and, you know, and we did see, again, record turnout, which was marked, you know, which was marked by, you know, record Democratic turnout last time, but also matching yeah. record Republican turnout. Right. right. I mean, that's been one of the one of the tales here, right, is that when, the, when Democrats have begun shown some signs of being able to inch towards and actually delivering on, you know, the mythic mobilization of Democratic non-voters. We've seen Republicans, you know, make efforts, sometimes as in 2018, kind of at the last minute and in half something of a panic mode, being able to go and say, hey, you know, there are, you know, Republican non-voters too, but we got to go, we got to go get them. Yeah. And if you go, if you talk to Republican operatives, and you talk to them regionally about yeah. West Texas and the Panhandle. Those are places I, you know, take a drive out there and look at all the Trump signs on the ranch houses yeah. and stuff. Like it is, it is really remote. It is not Houston. It is not Dallas. And you know, you wonder if a Nikki Haley or you know even a DeSantis has that kind of mobilizing potential. But but I guess the the, the point I'd make uh, this is a really interesting question. If if you're not Trump and you're another Republican and you're getting whacked in these polls and you want to make an electability argument like, hey, Trump, look at all these problems. He yeah. is not. A, he lost in 2020. He fed the parties fall into. OK, but he's he's beating you all in the trial ballots. Yeah. He's running stronger. Now, I actually think if you look under the hood a little bit and you see the numbers with independents and you see yeah. the opposition to Trump. But but that's a complex professorial argument to make. Right. And what you'd want if you're Haley or DeSantis is, hey, I'm I'm beating Biden 50 to yeah. 42 and Trump is tied. And, and we don't have those numbers. Ar- yeah. It's one thing to make that argument in Iowa or New Hampshire. It's another thing to make it in Texas. Yeah. Well, especially, you know, especially in a moment when, you know, you're looking at, you know, the, the, the nature of Republican politics is not to look at and say, well, what would the general electorate think about this? Right. I mean, that's not what's going on right now. And that's not what's driving Republican politics at the national level or, you know, really right. at the presidential well, or at the state level. Yeah, so. you know, I could be wrong, Josh, but one of the things that strikes me as being very different from the, the Democratic campaign in 2022 retake the White House. Yeah. Was this craving for electability? You know, I, I don't care mm-hmm. who you give me as long as they can beat Trump. Right. Yeah. And I don't get that sense on the right. I don't get the sense the right is as hungry to get Biden out as the left was to get Trump out in 2020. They would like to beat Joe Biden, but would they sacrifice their sincere preference 
to achieve that? I'm not so sure. Yeah, or do a significant share. I mean, look, you know, I, mean, I was watching something with Trump this morning, basically, t- saw, you know, saying at a, an event, you know, to, to Republican voters, you don't even vote. It doesn't matter. Just watch what's going on and sort of, sort of people speculating why he would, why anyone would say that, you know, yeah. and the most cynical version say, well, you know, if you're not going to believe the res- outcome, you know, the results of the outcome anyway, then, you know, what difference is it? You can kind of build this in. And, and that's the sort of thing here. I mean, you know, the, the, the overarching context of what you're describing is, you know, severe distrust of the whole electoral system and the ability to actually like aggregate votes reasonably, right? right, right. The but, other thing, Jim, before we move on, yeah, no, go ahead. and maybe you, you all like to take a whack at this, but uh, people are going to go to the, the data are going to notice the very high number of others or else mm-hmm. yeah. responses in the ballot questions. And um, part of that we should you know, advise our, our, our listeners and, and readers that part of that is because when, you know, you take the polls, we give it, that is an option. It's not, right. know, we don't say, hey, or somebody else. Yeah, we're not mentioning, yeah, or right. there's somebody on there that was just too small. Right. We're but not it is, it, it is an option. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people check that box. And, and in particular, if you're looking for reason why these non-Trump Republicans ran so mediocrely mm-hmm. against uh, Biden, it's the Republican numbers. Yeah. Um, a, a number of Republicans choosing other or else are really off the charts, right? So, so we're yeah, no, I, and I think that's an interesting characteristic of all this. Yeah, right. And I mean, you could, I, I think it's, you know, yeah, you could say like, well, maybe that's reflection of support for Kennedy or support for Cornell West or. I, I think in a lot of ways it's two things. It's, it's I don't a, think either. Yeah. yeah, I think it's really like <laughs> one could say that right. West yeah. vote in in Texas. One, I don't think it's a hidden. One Kennedy could argue, yes, incorrectly. <laughs> but <laughs> but, I, but I but your point is well taken. Yeah, yeah, and and, and I think yeah. uh, since it's it's disproportionately concentrated on the right, I think it reflects partly Trump supporters who are like, well, if it's Haley and Biden, I still want Trump. Yeah, um, and then part of it is just dissatisfaction with you know. Both candidates, both major, and and a way, a cheap way of registering your sense that the system is broken. Yeah, and at a distant, from, at, at some distance from the election, right? To be yeah, fair. I think that's important. Because we too. keep I saying mean, early, you know, everything right, is exactly. like you know, early soundings. Well, and I think it's yeah. important. I mean, we just have to acknowledge here. I mean, these these are some. I mean, DeSantis in particular is very well known. Scott is pretty well known. I think the last time we we checked in, you know, I think he had name ID around you know fifty percent, which was pretty high for you know again, yeah, a senator from a, a very different state, right? But I think, you know, you have to – the context of this is you have, you know, in between Trump and Biden, two universally known candidates. And then in the remainder, you have Biden and somebody who's going to be, you know, variously known even among the Republican electorate. Yeah, I, I want to go backwards and forwards at the same time. So I want to oh, go backwards good. to re-hit this point of, you know, what the mobilization environment is going to be like as we get closer to the general election. But I want to look at the Senate race through that lens. And so, you know, do you see, I, you know, and look, I mean, I think the, look, the answer to this is, as you already said, Darren, there's just not a lot of awareness of the Democratic primary race yet. But as you look forward and we consider Ted Cruz and we consider what seem to be the two front running candidates here in Congressman Colin Allred and State Senator at some level behind, at some extent behind Allred right now, State Senator uh, Ron Gutierrez, I mean, is there, you know, what are you seeing at this early stage, granted, in the ability of that Senate race to, you know, be material to the political landscape and to political efforts in when, as we get closer to the general election? Yeah. I think, you know, the number we cited earlier is consequential, which is the number, the percentage of people saying they're going to vote in the Democratic versus the Republican primary. 
And maybe that number goes up as, you know, perhaps the Trump lead persists and people don't see that as being a particularly entertaining contest and, you know, money gets spent on the Democratic side and that, you know, race kind of catches up a little bit. But you're still talking about, I think, a top end, maybe 40 percent of, you know, in this case, registered voters who say they intend to vote in the Democratic primary. Um, The enthusiasm numbers we registered in this cycle, I mentioned, you know, when Trump's on the ballot, everybody's, well, everybody's interested, everybody's motivated. But when you ask how enthusiastic you are about (laughs) participating, the 2019 poll we ran, same time, 2019, 50% of voters said they were extremely enthusiastic. October 2023, 39%, right? So that's that's obviously an 11% drop in enthusiasm. Um, so I, I, I th- and I think that re- reflects just the general, God, can't we do better? And that these... drop was apparent both, both amongst both Democrats and Republicans. It right. wasn't like it was one or the other. I mean, it was right. everybody. Right. So now having said all that, I, I would love to be in all reds position right now. Um, you know, we're, we're clocking him at, uh, you know, 40, little over 40%, 41% have heard of all red. Uh, Josh, what's the number amongst Democrats? It's, I mean, it, it, it's about that. I mean, this okay. is among the people who said they vote in the Democratic primary. Okay. All right. And then, you know, so, you know, 59, 60% said they haven't heard of him, right? So two out of three have heard of him. That's significantly better. I think uh, Gutierrez is at uh, 70% haven't heard of. Everybody else on the Democratic side is upwards of 84% have not heard of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is an enormous, you know, lack of awareness to overcome as we say, the analogy is you're shouting in a crowded cafeteria. You're going to have a lot of presidential noise, and you're going to be trying to grab attention as a Texas, you know, Democrat running in a Senate race that, you know, I know it's been targeted, but I don't think it's considered one of the top five or six Senate races. It's sort of the well, best you know, where I, you know, I was looking at a list the other day. I, I was kind of canvassing some of the lists of the Senate race, just thinking about this. And what you usually see is Cruz, like on the kind of on the list, but what I would honestly say on the bubble. Yeah. Right? And I don't know if that is, you know, wishful thinking both in terms of sentiment towards Cruz and or, you know, there's a desire among analysts and certainly in the press, you know, to have as many competitive races as you can to talk about and write about. And I don't know about that. But there is this sense. I think we talked about this after the last poll that Cruz's position is kind of bubbling on the edge of this. You know, and I, I think in part it is a certain, you know, antipathy among the pundit class towards Cruz, frankly. And but it is also that, you know, Cruz has created some problems for himself that seem like unforced errors. Yeah. Right? I mean, before Josh kind of says something intelligent about this, oh, I'll say one more thing. And we'll that's I, I mean, if you, you know, in the the actual ballot. Democratic ballot question, we've got already at 21, Gutierrez at 10. Mm-hmm. But we've got 34% haven't thought about it enough, don't have an opinion, 12% don't know. B- basically, let's just take that as 50% yeah. saying they're really not registering yeah. an opinion at all. So double Allred's numbers. Nice. I, love when, 40, I love when you do this. Go to 42 or 43, right? Say, okay, let's assume that as people get informed, these candidates are going to grab their proportional share. All right, well, that puts Allred at 42, which is great. He makes the runoff, but he does not avoid the runoff. Right. Um, and that's something, that's a complication, right? If you want to, as Jim says, if you want to set your sights on Cruz, well, you know, I got to try to win outright on March 3rd. And then if not, uh, you know, the, the runoff is in May, I believe, right? It's it's not just six weeks later. It's significantly later than- I think that's right, the it, cycle it, it again. It typically yeah. is, yeah. And, and so you got to, 
I'll use the term waste a lot of time. That's not quite fair, but um, well, you got to spend a lot of time. You got to spend money. a lot of time and a lot of money, um, and that's not something that O'Rourke had to do in 2018. Um, you know, the presidential is going to suck up a lot of the oxygen in the tent. So while I, while I would like to be in Allred's position to win the nomination based on these numbers, it's 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 tough. Jim, you're right. I mean, I, I've seen the same rankings. Uh, you always see Texas and Florida as the two seats that Democrats are going to target out of the top ten. Yeah. Right? Top ten Senate seats. It's always Texas and Florida. And they're, and they're at like nine and ten. Nine and ten, <laughs> right. It, it's almost yeah. as if like, well, if they're going to turn something over anywhere, it would probably be in those states. I, And, and yeah, if, if you have antipathy towards Cruz and you look at those favorability numbers, uh, numbers amongst independents, then like, yeah, yeah, he looks like a ripe target. But is well, he? and ripe target based, you know, in part on look and on what you have to go on, which in addition to the favorability numbers is his last race. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, I guess I'll just make a couple scattered observations related to this conversation. You know, I think to the cruise point, you're asking about mobilization. And I think that's I mean, what you said is, is sort of how I view it. I'll just add one piece to that, which is, you know, you know Cruz is, uh, you know, a counter mobilization dream to some extent. Right. I mean, you know, like I think, you know, as we get into the winter and kind of see what happens with the grid and all that kind of stuff. I mean, you know, he does have you know a fair amount of history that I think is, is pretty easy to, to, to dredge up. And I think that's one of the things about Cruz in particular. You know, he's he's spoken on every issue that's that's happened and is on record. I mean, unlike a lot of people who really avoid doing that kind of thing. And so I think that. In of itself provides, you know, mobilization. He's creating potential. a lot of work for interns and campaign workers. He's someone's got to go listen to all those podcasts. All those podcasts, right? You know, transcribing. <laughs> not, to, not to throw, you know, people in glass houses. But you're, <laughs> but, but you're right. I mean, the notable thing about Cruz was, you know, there's a turning point in Texas where independents kind of got, you know, are usually negative towards everybody, but they were marginally Republican here and, and held, you know, pretty marginally Republican attitudes on a lot of issues. And then you start to look at Cruz's numbers just tanked during the 2018 election with independents. And I think you say, like, what made that race closer? Well, you know high-quality Democratic candidate and independence with a really negative view of Cruz, for the most part. Another piece of this I think that's important is Cruz's numbers among Republicans are stellar. Yeah, I mean, exactly. you cannot discount yeah. how strong Cruz runs among the state's majority party voters. You know, he does, like, basically, I would say it's Trump, Cruz, Abbott, in that order, probably, most consistently. I mean, maybe Cruz and Abbott sometimes trade Abbott spots. Abbott move, you know, you know they can trade. Close. They can trade spots, but they're pretty close. And so it's not as though he has weakness amongst, you know, his own voters. So I, th I think there's that kind of piece of this. You know, I was looking back to think about the Democratic trial ballot. And, you know, when you look at Allred and we say he's at 21 percent, you know, in the trial ballot, you know, ha ha, <laughs> you know, Democrats. But the thing is, is, you know, you go back and look at prior polling and you look at where, you know, MJ Hagar was. You look at where, you know, someone like Mike Collier was and all these people kind of at the same time in the cycles and their cycles. And, you know, on their trial ballots, they were saying they're at like 17 percent, 12 percent. Right. And, and I would say this is pretty close to that. But the difference is that Allred is raising a ton more money. Right. And I think for Allred, I mean, to just kind of sit there and just be quiet and sit back and have every news article that comes out every quarter, how much money you raised and how it compares to Cruz is fine for him because ultimately Cruz isn't going to single him out. There's no point in doing that at this point. The more interesting thing, I think, looking at these numbers about the Democratic Senate primary is when you break it down by race. Now, again, these are going to be small samples, but Allred is leading among uh, African-American voters who say they'll vote in the Democratic primary with 27% of the vote. Gutierrez is at 2. Among Hispanics, Gutierrez is at 18. Allred is at 12. When we look at name ID among African-Americans, Allred 45% of African-Americans. Gutierrez 24%. Among Hispanics, Gutierrez 39%. Already 25%. And so if we think that there's some sort of, you know, piece of identity that's playing into this in terms of the fact that maybe Allred might 
uh, appeal more to black Democrats. I mean, he has a, a power base in Dallas, which is really what I think of as like sort of the black power base some ways in Democratic politics in Texas. I mean, you could say Houston. I don't know. One of them. One South, of them. South Dallas, yeah. Yeah. On the other hand, you know, you could say Gutierrez probably has a lot of room to grow if he is really leaning into, you know, his Hispanic identity, if that becomes important here. And the thing is, what we know from, you know, past polling is, you know, having a Hispanic name on the Democratic primary ballot is not unhelpful, especially if it is a low information election. And look, Roland Gutierrez has been completely straightforward about this. You know, I mean, I did the interview with him at the Mm -hmm. Tribune Festival a few weeks ago. You know, he is going to lean very hard into mobilizing Hispanic Democrats and and trying to, you know, the, expect him to spend a lot of time on the border and in South Texas. And so, I, you know, I, I think, you know, as you guys have described it, I mean, his campaign knows this. Yeah. The All Red campaign knows this because they're not saying anything about him. That Gutierrez is an underdog in this race. He's not, you know, he's not been particularly successful at raising money this far as you guys, you know, are, are have both kind of implied or said. But there's something interesting that's brewing in that race, and maybe it doesn't happen, right? But if you wind up going into, say, January, February, and Gutierrez, as you were saying, Darren, gets enough traction to drive this into a runoff, all of a sudden it's a very interesting kind of dynamic for Democrats. Yeah. It's, you know, because you, you haven't seen, you know, uh, you know, it's been a while since we've seen a I'm trying to make sure I'm saying I'm thinking about this correctly, but you know, a you know a Hispanic statewide candidate in a race like this on the Democratic side. Yeah, I, th- I have a good friend, Karen Kaufman, who was at Maryland and did her PhD work at UCLA. I think she's back in the B School at UCLA right now. Wrote a, a nice piece, gosh, 10, 15 years ago, called "Cracks in the Rainbow," and it was it was interesting how controversial that piece was amongst my colleagues at the time at UCLA, uh, because I thought the observation that, that Kaufman made in that piece was fairly straightforward, and that is that there there are inherent uh, black-brown tensions within the Democratic Party, especially yeah. in an urban area like Los Angeles, and Jim knows LA really well, like 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 I do historically. And, and for those of us who've been in Southern California generally, or in LA in particular, this wasn't news to us that, you know, I don't know that politics is necessarily a zero-sum game. But when it's a democratic city and the question is who's representing, who's got the, you know, who's the yeah. leader, who's got the money, um, you know, there's there was a very, you know, historically salient cleavage yeah. between Hispanics and Latinos in Los Angeles and the African-American community. And so it's not like this is new, but we don't talk much about it. Um, you know, there's sort of a presumption in favor of kind of racial and ethnic solidarity because of, you know, shared historical grievances, which is, you know, entirely legitimate. Yeah. But when it comes to practical politics, who's who's going to run in the name of the party? There are who's still distributive and transactional politics yes. going on here. And I think, you know, Josh and I have talked about the, you and I have talked about this a little bit. I mean, you know, I think that, you know, the idea that, you know, I'm trying to think about how to, you know, I'm phrasing this a little carefully, but not too carefully, that, you know, if you have non-white coalitional partners, they must automatically just get along and everybody's pulling in the same direction. You know, it's kind of a, you know, inflected very strongly by a kind of white perspective, <laughs> right? It's like, well, you know, it must all be part of the same coalition. And, you know, look, I mean, you don't have to look very far in Texas or, 
you know, talk to anybody who's been involved in Democratic politics in Texas in the last several decades, and it's it's a fact of life. Yeah, and it's not just, you know, uh, African-American and Latino. In Houston, there's a growing uh, Asian population. And yeah. within the Asian population, there's there's Vietnamese and Chinese and disparate interests and and sort of yeah. getting everybody on the same page, um, and especially in a primary context where you're supposed to have these expressive and that And that is one of the things that's, you know, very interesting. Again, going back to, you know, just the posing of this race and the particulars, you know, of how, you know, where there there are some kind of, you know, there are other meaningful distinctions between Allred and Gutierrez that are, that are interesting here. I mean, yeah. Gutierrez is not... I mean, you know, his district, you know, involved, you know, is, it's a very big district that involves part of San Antonio, but also Uvalde. It's a very, yeah, yeah. in terms of its, you know, population density, it's a very mixed district, unlike Allred's district. And, you know, Allred is the establishment candidate in this race within the party. Um, and so I think, you know, you can't, you know, to me, again, I think you're right, Darren. It's a, it's a little bit, it, it's clearly an uncomfortable conversation in some ways, but that is very much going on. So, um, I just want to say one other thing yeah. about that, which is just, I mean, I think, you know, looking at these numbers, I don't think, I'm not saying, you know, I can't predict the future, obviously. I'm what? Just, just a pollster. How good are you? I, well, that's what I've been telling people, and they don't listen. You're off the podcast. They just constantly say, we'll just do it anyway. Um, but, you know, I mean, I think the point of this is, you know, I look at this and I say, like, I don't, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. It's very early. I think Allred is, is in the catbird seat here. I mean, look, you know, I, I mean, my, what I've been saying, and I think this is true, so I'm going to say it again, which is, you know, I think he was indicated to him before he ran that he was going to be well-funded, and he has been well funded and it seems like that's the one thing that like he's definitely hanging his hat on early in this candidacy and we'll see how long that carries and what he does with it all that kind of stuff however if we do get to the primary and Allred sits there and gets 41 percent 42 percent of the vote Gutierrez comes in with 20 30 percent that runoff is going to be real interesting and how and I would say it's not one of those things where it's not gonna I mean it would be surprising if that was like a a statewide campaign where they're trying to hit everybody. I mean, you could see them trying to mobilize very different right. groups of voters. And it's going to be very, it would be very interesting, again, for having watched this for a while. That's not a race I've seen recently that would look like that. A little sideshow on this. I just want to flag and then we're going to run out of time because I know we've got, we've all got to be some places. You know, it's going to be interesting to see how the, until you know, very recently uh, uh, party switched black mayor of the Dallas area yeah. plays into oh, this. Yeah. Yep. Um, put a pin in that one. Another wrinkle. <laughs> yeah. Put another a pin wrinkle. In, <laughs> put a pin in that one. That's, yeah. that's a good way to, <laughs> that's all right, very, you know, we'll do very quickly so we can get everybody to the stuff they have to go to. Darren, what else is in the poll that you notice that you want to, you want to flag for people? Well, I'm always interested in the economic numbers and, um, we, we spoke of, uh, well, we mentioned affective partisanship. I'll I'll throw out another PhD word or PhD phrase was motivated reasoning. Oh, I love motivated. Reasoning, I love motivated reasoning. Um, which, <laughs> yes, which, I, I used which, that over breakfast. Yeah, I was going to say that was morning. Yeah, yes. that you was watched uh, me pumping my fist. But yeah, that was Josh's uh, nickname in high school on the soccer team. Um, <laughs> no, I'm just going to think about that. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to respond. But the motivated reasoning in this poll is is people's evaluations of the economy. Um, if you look at because we we offer a variety of of measures of this. We ask, how do you think the national economy is doing compared to a year ago? How is the Texas state economy? How are you and your family doing financially? And the partisan divide on these things. Well, first of all, 
only Democrats think, you go to the independents and Republicans and ask them, is the economy doing much better, national economy, than it was a year ago? And there's literally zero independents who say it's doing I think that's right, actually, yeah. than it was a year ago. But a, a good chunk of Democrats say the economy is doing better, um, national economy. When you go to Texas, Democrats are much less enthusiastic about the Texas economy um, and for obvious reasons, the Republicans are in charge of the Texas economy. And so the Texas economy apparently is lagging considerably. And I'm pointing out the Democrats, but the, the motivated reasoning is obvious on both right. sides. Because you, you can flip it in the views exactly. of Republicans. And, and right. Republicans think like, oh, the Texas economy is doing okay um, compared to the national economy. Independents, by the way, across the board say, no, the oh, economy is terrible. The Texas economy is bad. The national economy is bad. So, you know, thank goodness for our independence in that regard. I guess so. um, and then, you know, take a look at the financial numbers. The, you, how are you and your family doing? I, I would suggest it it bodes poorly for the Bidenomics messaging. Um, yeah. However much you talk about job growth, et cetera, those how are you and your family doing? That's not a macro assessment of Joe Biden and Bidenomics. That's how are you and your family. The numbers are not good here for a party seeking to win back the White House. Josh? You know, I was going to do something about leadership in, in the Republican Party, and I really do suggest you go and look at the job approval numbers that we have both for state, you know, basically state-level leaders, but also some of the national leaders. We tested job approval for all, all the leaders in Congress, including McCarthy, outgoing. Mitch McConnell numbers are very interesting. But I just want to point something out. It's still about the 2024 stuff. We asked about a bunch of trait questions about Biden and Trump, whether they have the temperament to serve effectively, whether they're honest and trustworthy. And we added one to this, which is whether they'd be too old to serve in 2025. And first of all, you know, Biden scores significantly worse than Trump on this. 69% of voters say that he's too old to serve in 2025 compared to 37% who say the same of Trump. A majority, 54%, disagree that Trump is too old to serve in 2025. But the real, the real stinger on this is that the majority of Democratic voters said, 52% that said that Biden was too old to serve in 2025. 58% say the same of Trump. Among Republicans, there's no problem like this. 52% disagree, I'm sorry, 75% disagree that Trump is too old to serve in 2025. 81% think Biden's too old. So this is not, this is an asymmetrical argument. I mean, even though they're both, they are both old. Trust me, I would say so. They're both very old. But when you look at sort of the way that voters are reacting to this, Democrats have really taken on this view that, that Biden is the one who's too old and don't necessarily feel as strongly about about Trump, or at least Republicans don't feel that way. So that's sort of just sitting out there. Yeah, no, I think that's, you know, I mean, I think, you know, there's a big, you know, the, the discussion of the age of both the candidates has kind of ebbed and flowed, you know, almost from the day Biden was <laughs> elected, really. Yeah. Um, and, and I think there's a desire among Democrats to say, look, this is just a media construct. It's not, this is not real. And you know what? It's real. Yeah. You know, I don't know if it's going to matter or not, you know, because of some of the forces of negative partisanship and polar, you know, blah, 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 blah. But it's it's not made up. Well, you know, it's like one of those things. If you were to say to me, right, I mean, again, I said I wasn't going to predict anything. But if you ask me right now, you know, what would have a bigger effect on the election? You know, Trump getting another indictment or being, you know, let's say found criminally liable in one of these cases or Biden falling down the stairs. I'd say Biden falling down the stairs. That's yeah. probably right. Yeah, I think that's yeah, I think that's that's fair. Um you know, I had a few things. I'm, I'm going I'm to just highlight something. I, I highlight a lot, but I'm going to highlight it because it's got two different hooks for today as we close out. And that is, you know, the continued preeminence of border security and immigration and the most important problem, batteries, among, particularly among Republicans. 
but with some attention from Democrats as well. If you fold that into some of the other polling that we did recently in August and the results on spending on border security, um, the increased centrality of that, you know, uh, and, and, the, and the continuing prominence of that issue, but particularly among Republicans, as we're sitting here today, the House of Representatives, the Texas House of Representatives is looking at, I think, three bills on border security and immigration that are all clearly tailored to appeal primarily to Republican voters, but while they'll be fought by the Democrats on the floor, are not going to you know, probably alienate as many Democratic voters as one might yeah. think. And we've been talking about independence, immigration and border security, then the salience of the issue, still an area where these largely disaffected independents that right now kind of hate everybody and everything still look at immigration and border security and look more like Republicans. And as we talk about that electoral environment in that Senate race, whatever is going on in the presidential race, and there will be a lot of border security politics, whoever is running for president, that is going to be front and center in the Cruz campaign's campaign in Texas, whether the opponent is Allred or Gutierrez. Or someone else. Or someone else, right? And so... You know, the centrality of this, it's a little like the Trump Teflon thing. I think we're so familiar with it that we just kind of go, yeah, you know, border security, immigration at the top of the MIP again. But it remains really central to, I think, trying to figure out what's going to happen in the next cycle. I'll say one thing about that. You know, people might say, well, yeah, but look at all the number. You look at all the the apprehensions, all the crossing. But this number has been consistent regardless for the last, you know, decade, basically. So it's not as, I mean, even in ebbs and flows and migration, seasonal changes, this is not a reflection of necessarily even, I mean, I'm not saying it's not a reflection of the environment. It's still a reflection of the environment, but it's not being driven by the current environment because it's existed long before that. Or by proximate events, right? There's no proximate event drivers here. So with that, thanks to both you guys for coming here. As always, I I found it interesting and fun. I hope you out there did as well. Um, thanks again, as always, to our excellent production team in the Dev Studio and the College of Liberal Arts here at UT Austin. Um, all of these results that we've talked about, and actually many more, we focused primarily on on 2024 and this conversation. Lots of results on the fallout from the Paxton impeachment, job approvals, tons of stuff on education and voucher slash ESAs. We'll be unpacking more of those in the very new future on the blog and in this podcast. You'll find both the, all of the data, you'll find all of the data, you'll find more analysis and links to podcasts at texaspolitics.utexas.edu. So thank you for listening and we'll be back again soon with another second reading podcast. The Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. 